if it was not for what she did, the line for the Messiah would have been cut off. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. I, I want to recap last week when we went through chapters 8 through 10 of 2 Kings because it's a lot of information and it's very confusing. So I want to sort of fill you in on, on where we're at in the story. So the crux of it is Elijah, who had, has since been uh, carried up to heaven in a chariot, had some unfinished business with his ministry. Um, and God had asked him to do three things, and of the three, the only one he had accomplished before he got carried off into heaven was handing over his ministry to his protege, Elisha. So Elisha had to finish up these other two tasks for Elijah. At this time, there, the king of the north is named Jehoram, and the king of the south is named Jehoram. And they're related because the Jehoshaphat, the king of the former king of the south, arranged a marriage for his son for, with the daughter of Ahab. So Jehoram's, the king of the north's sister, is the wife of the king of the south. So they're in-laws, and they're both named Jehoram. I can't imagine what it's like to name marry someone with the same name as your brother. It's got to be weird. And has the same position, just in a different country. So two kings, Jehoram in, in the south, Jehoram in the north, and they're in-laws. But the task left behind to Elisha, from Elijah, was to pronounce a new king and to anoint the next king of the northern kingdom of Israel and to anoint the next king of Syria, whom they were at war with. And so Jehoram is about to get replaced by a man named Jehu because he's getting anointed by Elisha to be the next king. Also, Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Syria, is getting replaced by one of his top men, um, named uh, Hazael. And he's getting anointed as king over Syria. So Elisha goes and he, com he completes his task. Jehu, in usurping the throne from the king of the north, 
kills both Jehoram of the north and the south. And he replaces the northern king as the new king of Israel. Hazael has replaced the king of Syria. So now there's a king, a new king in the north, a new king in Syria, and the southern kingdom has just lost their king as well. Now I hope that that made sense and wasn't super confusing, but I know that there's a lot of names and events that maybe you'll have to re-listen to it. But that's what's gone on here. And if you follow along in Second Chronicles as well, chapter 24 is where you'd pick up there, but we're in chapter 11 of Second Kings. I mention that because in Second Chronicles, the language is that there was no one to take the throne for the southern kingdom, is how it starts telling this same portion of the story. But how it starts in chapter 11, it says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. Now, this is important because Athaliah is the wife of Joram. In the, she, she was the wife of Jehoram in the south. Her husband died at the hands of Jehu. Her son is now dead, and her heir to the southern kingdom is gone. And so everyone else who is to take the place of the kingdom in the, in the south, in the, in the kingdom of Judah, she goes after. This is important because it's prophesied that the king of Judah has to, has to be from the Davidic line. So the Messiah has to come from the line of David. And these are all, this is the, the sons of David. This is his lineage. And Athaliah finds out that her son is dead. So the other sons of the king, she wants to destroy all of them. If she's successful, this wipes out the possibility of a Messiah because there is no heir from David, from David's line to take over the throne if she succeeds. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So this woman, Athaliah, was married at one point to King Jehoram in the south, who was the son of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, a really good king. Jehoram, a terrible king because of how he was influenced by this woman, Athaliah. And now she's reigning in Israel as she thinks that she has done a good job at getting rid of the complete Davidic line. And all of the sons of David look to be gone. But Jehoshaphat saved one heir. If it was not for what she did, the line for the Messiah would have been cut off. And so all of the things that led to this point are history that points out how close it was for God's prediction of Messiah 
to have not come to fruition. And so you see the spiritual warfare in the world trying to end the line of the Messiah to prevent the promise that God gave all the way back in Genesis 3. So Jehoshaphat, she should be celebrated because she saved the one person. So there's only one person through whom the Messianic line could come from now. So pick up in verse 4. In the seventh year of Jehoiada, uh, sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the bodyguards and escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. Then he commanded them saying, this is what you should do. One third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's house. One third shall be at the gate of Sir, and one third at the gate behind the escorts. You shall keep the watch of the house, lest it be broken down. The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep watch of the house of the Lord for the king. But you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be the king as he goes out and as he comes in. You're to be with the king as he goes out and he comes in. So, this one boy, the one last hope for the Messianic line to continue, is protected. And he's brought to the temple, and now he's protected year-round to make sure he can eventually take back the throne. So the captains in, of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded. So Jehoiada is the high priest. He's watching over the heir to the throne, and he's keeping him protected at the temple. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath and come uh, to Jehoiada, the priest. And the priest gave captains of the hundreds the, spear, uh, the spears and shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. He's literally being protected by the instruments of war from David. Then the escorts stood, every man with his weapons and his in his hand all around the king from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple by the altar in the house. And he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, and gave him the testimony. They made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. So he's protected for seven years, and then he becomes the king at seven years old. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. When she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to custom, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, so Athaliah tore her clothes and cried out, Treason! Treason! Interesting. This is very selfish. She's crying out, Treason! She tried to kill all of the rightful kings. And because someone protected one, and now he's been presented to the people, and the people request that the rightful king take the throne, she cries out treason. She's the treasonous one who tried to kill all of the kings. Um, it's very interesting. That's very human nature of, of us to point the finger at someone else when we're the one doing what's wrong. And Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, take her outside under guard and slay 
with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her. And she went by way of the horse's uh, entrance to the king's house, and there she was killed. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people, and they should be the Lord's people. That they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They thoroughly broke in pieces its altars and images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars and the priests appointed officers over the house of the Lord. Then he took the captains of the hundreds, the bodyguards and the escorts, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by the way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the kings. So all of the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. Jehoash, or Joash, it's the same person, was seven years old when he became king. So this, this Joash, who was protected and kept separate when Athaliah was looking to ki kill all of, the, all of the heirs to the throne, is now king at seven years old. And honestly, if you even just by looking at the minimal story we have here, it seems like the priest, Jehoiada, was looking to protect him as long as possible, to let him mature as much as possible. Um, but you get some context that Athaliah was really destroying the southern kingdom because she was bringing the practices of the northern kingdom down to the southern kingdom. In that, she built temples to the pagan god Baal and instituted Baal worship in the southern kingdom. And so when Joash becomes king, one of the first things they do is go and destroy all the temples to Baal. Now in the seventh year of Jehu, Joash, Jehu is the northern king, Joash became king. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Now that's important. Joash was a really good king as long as Jehoiada, the high priest, was influencing him. You actually find out a little bit more in 2 Chronicles, which we'll get to eventually. But after Jehoiada's death, he's able to be influenced by others, and he makes a pretty bad deal that sort of leads to his own destruction. But he was a very good king as long as he had a positive influence in his life, which, again, very human nature, right? We tend to become a lot like the people we hang out with. And even Proverbs says, you know, a council of fools leads to destruction. Um, now Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all that money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. So as a very young man, they tear down the, te the temples of Baal and his first order is to rebuild the temple and to take care of it for the worship of God in the southern kingdom. So that's pretty good. And he instructs the priests to collect from their own constituency and from wherever they're from. 
and to put that money towards the rebuilding of the temple. And so very early on, he puts his money where his mouth is and where his money goes towards the worship of God, not to himself. Now it was so by the 23rd year of King Joash that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So he's about 30 years old now, and uh, the, they've been collecting this money for 23 years, and the temple still isn't repaired. So King Joash called Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priests, and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damages to the temple? Now therefore do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. So basically, they had collected the money to repair the temple, um, but the priests weren't capable of doing it. So they allocated that money to go to the people who could professionally do the things that needed to be done to repair the temple. Um, what a surprise. Sometimes ministry isn't meant for the priest or the pastor. It's meant for the people um, to do what they do best and to serve in the way that they can serve. And that's what's happening here. And Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar. On the right side, as one comes into the house of the Lord, and the priests who kept the door put there all the money brought, brought into the house of the Lord. So it was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's scribe and the high priest came up, put in its bags, and counted their money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they gave the money which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and stone cutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone and to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, and all that was paid out to repair the temple. However, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. So basically the money was given to craftsmen and the craftsmen crafted and they fixed up the temple. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into, the, into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to workmen for they uh, dealt faithfully. The money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. So the priests kept what was meant for them and everything else went directly to the required payment of fixing up the temple. Now, at this point, it doesn't state it directly in 2 Kings, but we know from the context of Chronicles that this is when Jehoiada passes away and he loses his influence over Joash because he's not there anymore. Um, and at this point, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. So he took a Philistine city. Then Hazael set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred things and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And in the king's house, and sent them to Hazael, king of Syria. Then he went away from Jerusalem. So Hazael, the new king of Syria, remember Elisha anointed him the next king of Syria, has now decided after taking a Philistine city that he wants to come after their biggest enemy, the southern kingdom of Judah. And he marches towards Jerusalem. Now Jehoiada is no longer the positive influence over Joash. So Joash is looking for a way 
out of this. He sees war coming his way, and rather than trusting God, he just gives Hazael, the king of Syria, what he would want. So he takes all of his personal wealth, and he gathers it up, and he brings it to the king of Syria to prevent war. And for the moment, it works. He gives him what he wants. He loses his wealth, but he's still the king, so he didn't really lose much. But what happens next, now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of Milo, which goes down to Silla. For Jazakar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servant struck him, so he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So the Davidic line continues because Joash has a son, and Amaziah is that son who now reigns in Judah. Um, but he lost his life to a conspiracy, and some of his servants came and killed him. So those are the chapters that we're discussing today. Now, the big picture is really big here. It's a huge deal. Now, when we started this whole journey, when we started way back in Genesis, I pointed out, be aware of the spiritual warfare that takes place and what the context is as we get closer to the Messiah. Now, we start out in Genesis, and God creates everything, and it's good. But people disobey, Adam and Eve, uh, and they sin, and they get kicked out of the garden. They lose access to the tree of life, so they don't have eternal life anymore, uh, the access to eternal life anymore. Um, and that's a good thing, because if they were able to live eternally in their sin, they would be eternally separated from God. That's why God kicks them out of the garden. And he begins a plan to redeem mankind. And he tells us in Genesis 3:15 that at some point, Eve, so a seed of the woman, will bear, she will bear a seed who will strike the head of the serpent, and in doing so, he will bruise his heel. The serpent will bruise this heel. Now, she thinks that's Cain, and she names, she names him Cain exactly for that purpose, really meaning, look at this, thank you, God, for this man that you gave me, thinking that he is the solution to the sin problem. Um, and so she names him accordingly. But Cain, in his pride, doesn't offer the correct sacrifice to God. Abel, his younger brother, does. His sacrifice is preferred. Um, Cain kills Abel. Instead of becoming the rescuer of sin, he becomes the first murderer. And so Abel's dead. Cain's a murderer. And they're wondering what is now on the table. Cain's kicked even further away from his family. And what do they do? They have another son. His name is Seth. Seth means appointed. He's the one who's appointed to carry on this promise. And then in Genesis 5, you get a list of the, dis the descendants of Adam and Eve, starting with Seth. And it goes to Noah. And mankind gets so wicked that God wants nothing to do with how far off the rails they've gone, except for Noah. And he sends a flood on the world, and Noah's redeemed from it. And then Noah's the one who carries along this promise from Seth. And Noah, unfortunately, uh, gets a little messed up after the flood is over. His sons trick him. But he has three sons who carry on his line. So it's not going to be Noah who's the rescuer, but one of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And God picks Shem out of that group. And that's where we get the term Semitic from the Semitic peoples they are from descendants of Shem. 
one of the sons of Noah. And out of Shem's line, after the Tower of Babel is built and people disobey God again, and God confuses their language and spreads the people apart all over the earth, people are all over the earth worshiping false gods. He hands them over to their own desires, and then he picks one guy, Abraham, who happens to be a descendant of Shem. And God promises Abraham he's going to bless the whole earth through him and make him a nation. And so one of Abraham's descendants is now going to be the one who fulfills this promise that was given to Eve all the way back in Genesis 3. And so Abraham has a son, Isaac, who's chosen. And then Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob becomes Israel. And then all the Israelites are descendants of Jacob. In Jacob, in Genesis 49 chooses Judah to be the one. He says, Judah, the scepter will not pass from you, meaning you will be the one who's royal of all of my sons. So Judah is going to be the one that the kingly line comes from. And David is from the line of Judah. In all of that, we now have the messianic line that's promised. And we've seen through the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings how we got there. We got to see the people choose their version of who they think should be king in Saul, who wasn't from the tribe of Judah, and how that failed because his pride took over. And then David comes in and takes over after Saul's death. And David becomes the king, the height of what it looks like to be king in Israel, and he becomes the standard and the one through whom the line of Messiah will come. But then we see Solomon take over, and Solomon does a really great job in the beginning and fails at the end. And because of his failure towards the end and the way that he treated the people, his son learned from his bad behavior in the latter half of his reign. And so when Solomon dies, his son takes over and expounds on the bad decisions that Solomon made. And there's a civil war, and Israel breaks up into two kingdoms. And now we have this history that's all been leading to this moment. And it ends up that when Jehoshaphat is making a deal with Ahab, that their families get intermingled for peace reasons, and it nearly causes the entire destruction of the Messianic line, and it almost destroys God's plan. And only one person remains. And all of this is recorded so that we know God's providence is real. And when God makes a promise, he'll follow through because he protected enough to make sure that we were still going to get our Messiah. So from the big picture, you know, Joash only gets a couple of chapters, and the first chapter is really about all how he was saved by other people. He's not even a hero. And in just these two chapters, it's, ex it's extremely pivotal because the enemy almost won, almost. But Jehoshaphat saved Joash and allowed the kingly line to proceed. And after he's gone, Amaziah takes over his place and reigns in Judah so that the Davidic line can remain. Now there's going to be more trouble coming up in the future as we finish up 2 Kings and things that we have to, to deal with that, that Jesus overcomes in the way that his birth is. But this moment is huge. The spiritual warfare to destroy the messianic line and to destroy the promise that God made from the very beginning to Eve was so close. But God is bigger than the enemy. Anyway, with that, let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for, for this story. 
I, I'm appreciative to know that even when things look their bleakest, you're there and protecting your promises. And you will keep them. No matter how bleak it looks, you will keep your promise. And I think that's important to know in a time when the world seems bleak and dark. We can trust in you because you will always come through and be victorious in the end. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.